From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Welcome back to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Today, we're following up on Episode 7, in which we discuss the pathophysiology and classification of shock. And just as a reminder, we discuss the fact that shock is a dynamic and evolving condition or syndrome characterized by an imbalance in oxygen supply and demand. Further, we categorize shock into four categories, namely hypovolemic, cardiogenic, distributive, and obstructive. For the purposes of today's rounds, we're going to review the diagnostic and initial management considerations for patients with presumed shock. In future episodes, we'll take a deeper dive into specific conditions or etiologies of interest among surgical patients, from cardiac tamponade to massive PE, septic shock, hemorrhagic shock, and more, both from the standpoint of mechanisms through early and late management considerations. Before we jump in, I'd like to give a shout out to my friend and previous co-feller, Dr. Quadro Karen Mantang. Quad is a double-boarded ICU and palliative care physician at the Ottawa Hospital, which is where I completed my general surgery residency and fellowship in critical care medicine. Quad is the host of an awesome podcast, Solving Healthcare. And if you're interested in exploring issues related to improving healthcare delivery through frank discussions on social justice, distribution of resources, and these days, a whole lot of talk on COVID, do check it out. Quad, I'm really looking forward to getting together with you, my brother, catching up and developing some content with you. So getting back to shock, we have three key objectives for today's rounds. And by the end of rounds, you should be able to, number one, discuss the key findings on a focused physical exam that suggests the presence of shock. Number two, describe the initial life-saving interventions that should be performed in all patients with shock. And number three, understand key management considerations for specific categories of shock, including hypovolemic, cardiogenic, distributive, and obstructive. So in order to diagnose shock, we have to first recognize it. And the problem with this is that shock is a syndrome with varying presentations. And for those of you with limited clinical experience or experience managing acutely ill or injured patients, it does take some time to sort through the myriad of symptoms, signs, and adjuncts which collectively inform you of a patient's status. Again, the eyes can't see what the mind does not yet know. The key point here is that we must maintain a high index of suspicion for the presence of shock, which does present on a spectrum from sick to not sick. Now, with that said, I think we can all agree that patients in deep or profound shock are relatively easy to identify. They are usually obtunded, ashen in appearance, hypotensive, and look horrible, so much so that anyone with a pair of eyes could tell you this person is sick. Unfortunately, the vast majority of patients in shock don't present this way, and to date, there's no one single gold standard test that will aid us in making the diagnosis, and this is where the art of medicine really comes into play, together with experience and attention to subtle and changing details or findings. Back in episode three, Dr. Matt Martin joined us on rounds to discuss endpoints of resuscitation, and if you haven't listened to that episode, please do. Just ignore my expert interviewing skills, JK. It was my first interview with a trauma giant. But all kidding aside, we, we discussed several pertinent topics when it comes to recognizing shock. And one of the key take-home points that we emphasized was that the first thing we want to ask ourselves when evaluating a patient is, is our patient sick or not sick? And following that determination, we want to vomit 
And that mnemonic again stands for V Vitals, O O2, M Monitors, I IVs, and T Therapies plus or minus 12 lead. So sticking with diagnosis and recognition, even in the absence of an actual monitor, we need to start out with our ABCs, ask the patient their name, note the respiratory pattern, and palpate for a radial pulse. Remember, as we move further away from the core or the heart, the stronger or higher the pressure has to be in order to be palpated. Therefore, as a general rule, a bounding radial tells you that the patient's got a systolic blood pressure of 90, a palpable radial, 80, whereas a palpable femoral tells you that their systolic is somewhere on the order of 70, and a palpable carotid, 60 millimeters of mercury. Although we say that hypotension and shock aren't the same thing, the fact of the matter is is that if a patient has a systolic blood pressure of 60, 9.9 times out of 10, they're in shock. Outside of blood pressure, the presence of tachycardia, tachypnea, and hypoxemia are also helpful clues. But just remember that the clinical context is so important. Along the lines of vitals, it's really important to also remember that changes and trends in vitals provide more data than a single reading in time. So whenever I see a consult, I make sure to review the trends or graphics on the monitor to look at changes over time together with the timing and types of interventions performed. Because shock is a syndrome, and a syndrome is comprised of a set of associated symptoms, it follows that we must examine the whole clinical picture versus a specific sign in isolation. Now, given the fact that time is tissue, this doesn't mean that we're going to perform a complete or comprehensive head-to-toe examination. So when we're called to assess a potentially sick patient or when a critically injured patient arrives to the trauma bay, what are the key symptoms or signs that will or should alert us to the presence of shock? For simplicity's sake, I like to think of the body as being composed of six key organ systems, and they are the CNS, cardiovascular, pulmonary, genitourinary, hepatic, and the coagulation system. And if it's not already obvious... Symptoms and signs referable to the CNS, CV, respiratory, and GU systems are immediately accessible to the senses, whereas hepatic function and coagulation are not. In fact, we would need to send off labs to get a sense as to what was going on with those organ systems specifically. When I examine a patient, the number one concerning finding for me is always the presence of encephalopathy, whether that's septic encephalopathy, ischemic encephalopathy, or metabolic encephalopathy. Altered mental status and confusion for me are always a warning sign insofar as the patient probably has some element of cerebral hypoperfusion. And on a related but unrelated note, that's kind of why I don't mind the sepsis 3 criteria, which looks at your blood pressure, respiratory rate, and GCS other than 15. I think drawing attention to the fact that abnormalities in cognition or mental status is really important to bear in mind whether that's for sepsis or ruling out shock in general. Speaking of heart rate and SBP, in terms of the cardiovascular exam, one of the other key findings I look for once I palpate for a pulse is I want to assess the skin temperature, cap refill, and I always take note of the presence or absence of modeling over the patella. Similar to when we determine sick versus not sick, here what we're trying to dichotomize is, is my patient in warm, or cold shock. And this has very important implications both for diagnosis and treatment. Patients in warm shock in general are vasodilated and have low SVR, 
And this is much more suggestive of a distributive etiology for their shock, whether that be neurogenic, anaphylaxis, or early sepsis. Whereas patients who are in cold shock, in general, this means that they're clamped down or have increased SVR in an effort to compensate for a low cardiac output, the two of which together comprise your mean arterial pressure. So patients who fall under this category include patients with cardiogenic shock, patients who are hypovolemic, as well as potentially patients with obstructive shock. The one caveat to warm versus cold is that in patients with distributive shock due to sepsis, Although they may appear to be in warm shock early, usually as that septic shock disease process evolves and develops over time, these patients oftentimes do eventually turn cold. A great example of how the differentiation between cold and warm shock may be of help happened just last week in the trauma bay. We had an elderly gentleman cyclist struck by an MVC who came in with no evidence of extremity movement and a depressed GCS resulting in intubation. Following intubation, the patient crashed or crumped and was very hypotensive. And of course, we assumed that that was due to bleeding. The patient got two units of whole blood and we activated the MTP. When we examined him, he was warm, warm, warm. And he shouldn't be if he was bleeding because with the decrease in his blood volume and preload stroke volume, he should actually be clamped down. The warm exam was actually very quickly followed by sudden bradycardia. And so when we put all the pieces of the puzzle together, it was apparent that this patient had sustained some form of a cervical or high thoracic spinal cord injury. How did that change management? Well, we sent the MTP back, and it's always a good idea not to waste blood products. But after eventually getting two liters of crystalloid to correct his relative hypovolemia, our attention then turned towards increasing his SVR with the use of alpha-1 adrenergic agonists such as levofed, which also has a little beta activity, but really not much at all. Moving along to the respiratory system, just remember that patients with dysoxia and in shock will often try to compensate for their underlying metabolic acidosis by blowing off their CO2, hence they become tachypnic, plus or minus increased accessory muscle use. From the standpoint of the genital urinary system, this is why with every patient who is unstable or sick, we insert a Foley and we want to measure urine output on an hourly basis. And this is the one time you really want to see 0.5 cc's per kg per hour to ensure that you're adequately perfusing those kidneys. As I stated earlier, the two other key organ systems, specifically the liver and coags, are hidden from our physical exam and therefore require labs to determine the presence or absence of dysfunction of these systems. Please do visit the website and check out the show notes for today's rounds at traumaicurounds.com. I've included a table of the ACS, American College of Surgeons, hemorrhage classification system, What you'll notice when you look at this table is that the determination of hemorrhagic shock severity is dictated by the constellation of signs on physical exam. In fact, there's only one lab or biomarker, the base deficit, and this was only just recently endorsed by the college. The key point here, and you've all heard this before, is that we don't wait to figure out exactly what's causing the person's shock before we initiate therapy. So if you determine a patient is sick or in shock, then you are obligated 
to immediately initiate life-saving therapies, specifically supplemental O2 for the A and the B, followed by IV access and balanced resuscitation to support their failing circulation. Given the fallibility of the focused physical exam, I would plead with you to please make sure you make liberal use of POCUS or point-of-care ultrasound. I don't care which protocol you follow, rush, focus, fate, what have you. What you need to have is an algorithmic approach or method for assessing the status of the tank and rule out hypovolemia, adequacy of pump function, both LV and RV contractility, and to also rule up potential obstructive causes of shock like a tension pneumothorax or cardiac tamponade. Again here, trends over time are helpful and we can also assess responses to therapies, so liberal use of ultrasound. Finally, in terms of labs, if your patient is sick, in addition to a VBG with lactate or the base deficit, at a minimum, I would perform POC or point-of-care CAMs and COAGs while sending formal labs as well, typically a type and screen and fibrinogen. If you have thrombilastography, then get your RTEG brewing ASAP. So just to summarize, right off the bat, patients may be sick or not sick. If they're sick, start therapy. Number two, a focused exam with attention to mental status and the skin exam may alert you not just to the presence of shock, but help you determine if they're in a warm versus cold shock-like state. And finally, use of diagnostic adjuncts, specifically POCUS and POC labs, may be invaluable in aiding you not just in terms of diagnostics, but to assess the response to therapy. And although we didn't touch upon it today, in a future episode, we will talk about the potential utility, benefits, and considerations of using the SVO2, or central venous oxygenation saturation, in helping us to to determine the type of shock that may be present, as well as the response of the body to our resuscitative efforts. As you'll hear, This really helps to provide us with some sense as to what's happening in terms of that balance between DO2 and VO2. And we can oftentimes use trends in the SVO2 to help guide our resuscitative efforts. And in terms of life-saving therapies, we have two major goals in treating shock. The first goal is to restore the balance between supply or DO2 and demand, aka VO2. And the second goal is to restore and ensure adequate flow. As flow isn't something that we can measure or readily assess at the bedside, and given that flow is directly proportional to pressure and inversely related to resistance, another way of looking at this is the MAP equals cardiac output times SVR. Our goal ultimately ends up focusing on increasing the blood pressure with a couple of caveats. Number one, the absence of hypotension does not rule out shock. And number two, in certain disease states, for example, neurogenic shock like we just talked about, it may not be possible to increase blood pressure solely by increasing flow. And this is where vasopressors or inducing vasoconstriction or increasing SVR comes into play. So first things first, if a patient's in shock, we need to improve their DO2 and decrease their VO2. 
there's different ways of going about this and include optimizing their pump function slash cardiac output or their O2 carrying capacity. Typically, though, we want to do both simultaneously. And so how do we do this? Well, number one, provide them a supplemental O2 and then fluid therapy in the form of a bolus of either crystalloid or blood products, depending on the etiology for their shock state. The reason we start with preload or volume loading, the major benefit here is that it's cheap, not just from a monetary standpoint, but from a physiologic standpoint too, as increasing preload increases cardiac output without a major increase in myocardial oxygen consumption. By augmenting the stress volume within the venous reservoir, we promote increased venous return, thereby increasing ventricular filling or end diastolic volume provided that we're not dealing with a particularly stiff ventricle, that is. And essentially, with the increased volume, we get increased myocyte stretching. That increases the sarcomere length, which causes an increase in force generation and enables the heart to eject the additional venous return, thereby increasing stroke volume. So again, by increasing the amount of myocardial stretch at end diastole, we have increased cross-linking of the myosin and actin fibers, which results in improved contractility as a result of increased force and velocity of each contraction. And of course, there's also a really important role played by intracellular calcium, but we'll get into that another time. One of the key points that I'm trying to make here is that if you think or hypothesize that your patient is in shock, then in order to test said hypothesis, it only makes sense to apply a rapid intervention and then immediately assess the response. And so this typically involves bolusing anywhere from 500 cc's to 1,000 cc's or a liter of crystalloid over a very short period of time, ideally over 10 to 20 minutes. So this is not the time to put in a liter of saline on the pump. The pump can only go up to 999 cc's per hour. And we don't want these things to drip in by gravity. So if we want to give someone a rapid bolus, the best thing to do is to get the pressure bag, provide the patient a pressurized bolus over a short period of time and assess the response. And remember, patients will respond in one of three ways. They either respond, hooray, high fives, we're great. They transiently respond, we're great, now we suck again. Or they don't respond at all, meaning something is happening that has not yet been addressed. So if that's bleeding, stop the bleeding. If it's due to severe sepsis or septic shock and you haven't found the source, you better find that source and consider broadening your antibiotic therapy. So other ways of improving cardiac output include enhancing contractility and decreasing afterload, both of which require vasoactive agents to achieve. And in fact, once patients are tanked up or filled, we typically don't move towards increasing contractility or decreasing SVR in an effort to improve flow. More often than not, we would then proceed to increase their SVR in an effort to drive up their MAP to a set target. Now, with that said, depending on the etiology, for example, if a patient comes in in cardiogenic shock due to, let's say, an acute MI, well, in these cases, patients are already so clamped down, have a really high SVR and poor cardiac output. In these particular scenarios, if someone is in cardiogenic shock, we need to be super gentle and careful in terms of how much we're volume loading them. So in these particular scenarios, if the clinical history, physical exam are consistent with heart failure, these are patients where we might still consider maybe a 250 or at most 500cc aqualot bolus. But very quickly, we want to confirm 
what's happening with the pump and then very quickly move towards supporting the failing circulation or the failing pump with something like a vasopressor and typically an inodilator. Again, in these situations, what we're really looking to do is to support and augment cardiac function in an effort to improve overall cardiac output as well as flow. Now, one of the questions that frequently comes up is what size IVs do we need to establish adequate uh, resuscitation if needed? And in the setting of trauma, you may have heard the notion of putting in two 14-gauge peripheral IV catheters in bilateral upper extremities. Well, if you've ever seen what a 14-gauge catheter looks like, these things look like a skewer you would put kebabs on. And in a hypovolemic patient with flat veins, uh, those aren't going in. So typically, we're pretty happy if patients have a couple of bilateral 18-gauge peripheral IVs. And through those, you can generate flow rates of anywhere from 80 to about 120 cc's per minute. Again, the other thing to establish or think about is the potential need for central venous access. We know that based on Poiseuille's law of resistance, that resistance to flow through a tube is directly proportional to length of that tube times the viscosity of the fluid going through it, and that might be crystalloid or it might be blood, and inversely related to the radius to the power of four. So when given the option of a triple lumen catheter versus a peripheral or two peripheral IVs, while on a triple lumen, the two lateral ports are 18 gauges and the middle brown port is a 16 gauge, but the length of the catheter is so long that there is so much more resistance. So you would never choose a triple lumen central catheter over two peripherals. With that said, there are central venous catheters that will outperform pretty much any peripheral IV on any given day of the week. And so this would include something like a cordis catheter, which is essentially an introducer sheath, which we can rapidly transfuse patients through, particularly if a rapid infuser device like a Belmont is added to the mix. Other types of catheters that are commonly used include the AeroGuard Blue Mac, and these particular catheters are typically a 9 French catheter that has a 12-gauge catheter for fluids and crystalloids and medications. So there are a number of options when it comes to IV access, and one of the key things here is that if it's an acute situation or an acute life-threatening situation and access is immediately required, don't forget about your IO. There was a great study by Dr. Seaman, who's going to be on the show in the near future, comparing the success as well as time to establish access via IO, peripheral IV, and central venous catheter. And surprise, surprise, the IOs were quicker, were much more likely to be successful than both peripheral IV and central venous catheterization. Again, they are sluggish and you will be limited in terms of flow rates. Uh, Other potential types of IO devices like a sternal IO may result in improved flow rates versus either tibial or humeral IO. Now, regarding choice of fluids when it comes to crystalloids or solutions, these days there really has been a push to move away from previous salt solutions like normal saline or even Ringer's lactate to more balanced salt solutions, specifically plasmalite. I think a lot of the decision to use One specific crystalloid over another, however, has to be tailored to the specific clinical presentation and etiology of shock. 
For example, if a patient is coming in hypovolemic due to significant upper GI losses in the setting of recurrent vomiting, let's say due to a bowel obstruction or gastric outlet obstruction, these patients will probably be hypochloremic as well as hypokalemic and have a metabolic alkalosis. So normal saline with KCL replacement would be a perfectly reasonable and probably the right strategy in that particular scenario. Now, take another patient who's coming in, and let's say the major problem here is not so much GI or GU losses, but hemorrhagic shock. Well, these patients, we're going to try to bypass and avoid crystalloids altogether and move directly to whole blood, plus or minus plasma-first resuscitation, followed by activation of the MTP with transfusion in a one-to-one-to-one manner, plus or minus a sprinkle of two grams of TXA. And of course, don't forget about the calcium. Now, in the setting of distributive shock due to, say, septic shock, well, there are some pretty clear guidelines, which, again, are up for debate in terms of how we want to perform our resuscitation. But in general, everyone's familiar with the early sepsis bundle. And so in patients in whom we suspect severe sepsis or septic shock, we want to get in a 30 cc per kg bolus typically of a crystalloid, but in this particular situation, depending on the patient's comorbidities and their presentation, a colloid might be considered. And then we want to send off the cultures, our lactate, and of course provide the patient with appropriate broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy. The key point here is that very shortly after that, we want to reassess the patient's volume status, and if they continue to be hypotensive or in a shock-like state with MAPS less than 65, we're going to very quickly add and escalate therapy, typically in the form of vasopressors, going from norepinephrine therapy with vasopressin, I would always suggest, plus or minus steroids, depending on how sick the patient is followed by epinephrine, and then an inodilator, depending on the scenario. That might be dobutamine, or it might mean a phosphodiesterase inhibitor like milrinone. In terms of other etiologies for distributive shock, anaphylaxis is relatively straightforward. Remove the offending agent, get the patient some epinephrine, some antihistamine blockade, along with steroids. These patients oftentimes will require some crystalloid and fluid resuscitation. And in this particular scenario, I think going with something like plasmolite might be reasonable. Of the endocrinopathies that we can see, actually, in the perioperative period, specifically I'm thinking about Addison's crisis, the key here is to ensure that those patients are getting their glucocorticoid or steroid replacement therapy, and that they're being dosed appropriately, particularly if they are suffering from significant physiologic stress or, for example, are undergoing a major operation or surgery. For the cases of neurogenic shock, I think we've already touched upon that. Uh, Replace their relative hypovolemia followed by vasopressor support. The one thing we didn't touch upon with the case from last week is that we got the patient on some norepi. If these patients continue to be symptomatic or manifest hemodynamic instability as a result of their bradycardia, epinephrine, or in this particular situation, even dopamine, might be a good vasopressor of choice. So having touched upon the potential fluid resuscitation as well as vasopressor therapies for patients presenting with either hypovolemic 
or distributive shock that really kind of leaves us with cardiogenic shock and obstructive shock. Needless to say, for patients with obstructive shock, the major solution to these problems is to remove the cause of the mechanical shock. So in the case of a cardiac tamponade, these patients need to be up in the operating room, prepped, ready to go, induced, meeting sternotomy, open up the pericardium, evacuate clot and blood, fix the hole in the heart. Pretty straightforward. Always feels like such a great save and in fact happens to be one of the easiest operations we do in the setting of trauma. For patients with tension pneumothorax, well, you need to vent that pleural cavity. So that may start with a finger thoracostomy. And again, definitive care typically involves placing either a pigtail catheter or an open chest tube thoracostomy. It all depends on local expertise as well as the acuity of the situation. For patients with a massive PE, these patients need to be supported in terms of their circulation and certainly a small bolus of fluids initially may potentially augment cardiac output. The key here is not so much to focus on preload, but to decrease the acute increase in their afterload due to that massive pulmonary embolus, as well as support RV contractility. So in the process of supporting that failing RV, potentially with a combination of vasopressor and typically inodilator, like something along the lines of dobutamine, which will augment contractility while decreasing afterload, that patient needs a mechanical thromboendarterectomy or lysis of that PE. And so again, this is all going to be hospital and location specific. Here, we would probably get that patient to the operating room, place them on cardiopulmonary bypass or VA ECMO, perform our thromboendarterectomy, and get that patient back to the unit. Whereas in other centers, this might involve catheter-directed lytic therapy or catheter-directed embolectomy. Finally, in regards to non-obstructive cardiogenic shock etiologies, treatment is ultimately going to be directed at the underlying etiology while performing therapies and interventions to decrease myocardial wall stress, improve coronary artery perfusion, as well as decrease overall myocardial oxygen consumption. So again, this is going to be a multimodal approach starting in the emergency room with the typical Mona therapy or morphine, oxygen, nitro, and an aspirin, followed very quickly by attempts to identify and then treat the underlying etiology. And most commonly, this is going to be an acute MI, in which case, depending on the patient's hemodynamic status, patients might go on VA ECMO, or proceed directly to the cath lab in order to undergo a percutaneous coronary intervention. Outside of ECMO, other mechanical modes of supporting the failing heart include the intraaortic balloon pump as well, in addition to LVADs as well as RVADs. The decision to employ inodilators to support the failing heart uh, have to take into consideration that these medications do certainly increase myocardial oxygen consumption, And so oftentimes, it becomes a little bit of a balance between risks versus benefits among these patients. And this is so often guided not just by the physical exam, but by invasive hemodynamic data in the form of a Swan-Gans catheter. 
So in summary, shock is a syndrome and early recognition truly demands a high index of suspicion. There are subtle signs of end-organ hypoperfusion that you have to be aware of. And so the presence of encephalopathy, confusion, altered mental status should always be concerning. And again, don't forget to touch your patients and examine them. Palpate for a pulse and get a sense as to what their skin exam is like. Are they warm or are they cold? Irrespective, we will initiate immediate life-saving therapies by placing two IVs, ensuring that they're getting supplemental oxygen, plus or minus ventilation if need be, and rapid administration of fluids, the selection or choice of which is going to be based on the suspected etiology, as well as labs, and of course, the volume of which will be guided by the patient's underlying conditions and potential etiology. So if patients are in cardiogenic shock, we don't want to flog them and think about very quickly moving towards vasopressor and inotropic support. Finally, always make sure to reassess the patient's response to your initial volume challenge. And again, patients will either respond, transiently respond, or not respond. If you like what you're hearing, please let us know. You can leave us a friendly comment at iTunes or at the website. Please let me know if there are any particular topics you want us to cover. Tomorrow, Saturday, June 30th is our first live webinar. We are talking all things trauma for medical students, so really excited about that. Until next time, please take care of yourselves, each other, keep reading, and we will talk soon.